Hi there, welcome to the QuackCast, a skeptical and sarcastic evaluation of quacks, frauds, and charlatans. Ah, oops. I mean, alternative and complementary medicine. This podcast is dated September 1st, 2006, and is entitled Lies, Damn Lies, and the Use of Alternative Medicine. This is brought to you by a side project of Puswell LLC, the publisher of the Persiflazer's Annotated Compendium of Infectious Disease Facts, Dogma, and Opinion, your Uber hyperlinked electronic guide to infectious diseases. Available at Puswell.com, where you'll also find the Persiflazer's podcast, a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases. Now, CME accredited. Really? If you do a search of podcasts and medicine, the bulk of results will point you to the many sites on complementary and alternative medicine, all of which are, well, garbage. There is, of course, the excellent quackwatch.com, the source of all things quackery. And there are a few skeptical sites with the skeptic's guide to the universe and skepticality among the best podcasts I have found. But there is a lack of podcasts that look at alternative medicine with a skeptical eye. And this is a shame, for to judge from the medical school in my neck of the woods, critical thinking and alternative medicine do not seem to go together. So you are in luck. I'm an infectious disease doctor with a long interest in things skeptical and have been honing my podcast skills for at least a year with my infectious disease podcasts. Available at Pusswear.com, by the way. So I have decided to branch out my podcasting into the other area of life and medicine that interests me and embarked upon what will be a short series of podcasts covering various aspects of alternative medicine. As Baruch Spinoza said, quote, I have made a ceaseless effort not to ridicule, nor to bewail, nor to scorn human actions, but to understand them, end quote. Obviously, this does not apply to me. Ridicule and scorn are two of my favorite approaches to alternative medicine, because it is all so stupid. And as time goes by, you shall see why I like to use what I like to call evidence-based ridicule. Now, as always, the references to the show notes are on the webpage, and old podcasts are archived there as well. And there's recently been started an occasional blog where a recent article in the alternative medicine field has been published in the medical literature, and I look at it in some detail. And the usual disclaimer, all the opinions are those of Pusware LLC and me, Mark Chrislip, alone. And so now on to the vicious screed. I once asked one of our medicine attendings, Richard Gicking, Hey Richard, why the measurement of the TSH went to three decimal points? He shrugged and said something to the effect of, I don't know. And then he said, the lab likes accuracy without precision. And I like that, because the TSH is very accurate, but it lacks precision in telling you how hypothyroid the patient is. That still requires going to the bedside and seeing clinically what's going on with the patient. I will concede that the phrase could be the other way around, precision without accuracy, and not lose its meaning, but I like my contradictions alphabetical. So remember the phrase, accuracy without precision, because numbers have a power and authority to them. You can't argue with the numbers. Well, yes, you can. You can if the origin of the number is questionable or is just plain wrong. You can argue with the numbers, and you can often discover that they have accuracy, but they aren't precise. Examples in popular literature include the fact that snow is so important to Eskimos that they have 38 words for it. Now, this is supposed to show how in tune Eskimos are with their environment. Man, they must know there's snow. Now, this is a quasi-myth because while Eskimos do have a lot of words for snow, so does English. The dictionary that came with my Mac has 37 words and phrases to describe no, but that number gives the myth believability. 
I bet right now you can't come up with 37 phrases and words for snow without a Mac. And I doubly bet you have neither the time nor inclination to see how many words there are in Eskimo to snow. No one except for obsessed cranks like me has the time and, more importantly, inclination to go back to the source and see where these numbers come from. Another popular myth is that people use 10% of their brains. Nonsense. The sad truth of the matter is that people use all their brains all the time. When it comes to alternative medicine, I wish it were true that people were only using 10% of the brain when they are being bamboozled by alternative medicine. Nope. All the evaluations of the brain suggest people use all their brain, and the sad thing is that most of the time they are just using it badly. That is, by the way, my first ad hominem attack of this talk. Keep track of my logical fallacies and win a prize of my choosing. Future podcasts will concern cognitive mistakes behind the use of alternative medicine. But for now, people say with authority that people use 10% of their brain, but you don't. Now, because it's dangerous and stupid, I ask every patient if they use any alternative therapies. I've done this for 20 years. And I don't say something to the effect, hey, are you a moron who've been suckered into quacks? I'm not a fool. I ask sensitive questions of my patients. Drug use, sexual habits, family history, alternative medicine. I think I know how to be judgmental when I ask, so do you use any folk remedies, herbal supplements, alternative remedies, or see an alternative medical provider? Even though it sticks in my throat when I have to say the phrase alternative medical provider. Now I can't give a number here to my observation, but it is rare indeed to have a patient who takes more than herbal supplements. Even though I seem to live and work in Quack Central, which is northwest Portland, I rarely have a patient who says that they partake of any kind of quackery, except maybe a little ginkgo biloba. I suppose that my patients are lying to me, but why they would admit to cocaine use and not alternative medicine would baffle even an arrogant bastard like me. So imagine my shock and surprise when I read over and over again that 34% of Americans, about one in three, used alternative medicine in 1990, and that from 1990 to 1997, those rates jumped to 42%, almost one in two Americans. Was Lincoln wrong? Was P.T. Barnum correct? And numbers, like many myths, take on a life of their own, especially when no one looks at the original source of the numbers. And in medicine, given the time constraints and volume of literature that we have to read, many people do not go past the abstract and read the article in detail. Today, we examine the source and accuracy of those numbers. Is it true that 34% of people use alternative medicine? that now it's up to 50% almost? Well, of course not. That's why I'm doing this podcast. That number of 34% comes from a New England Journal of Medicine article in 1993 entitled Unconventional Medicine in the United States, Prevalence, Costs, and Patterns of Use. David M. Eisenberg is the lead author. It is said that this is the most frequently cited article in the medical literature on alternative medicine, and I believe it. Every article since this one was published begins with referencing this paper as part of the justification of the research that follows. Since it is popular, we need to study it. This is sort of true, depending on the topic, and it must work. Never true here. Now, the New England Journal of Medicine is arguably the most reliable and prestigious medical journal in the world. They publish the best of the best and have a rigorous peer review so if it is in the New England Journal of Medicine, it must be valid. Well, maybe. The devil, as always, is in the details. 
There's a classic article in my own field of infectious diseases on how to treat a rare fungal brain infection called cryptococcal meningitis. For many years, people just read the abstract of these articles, I think, and used this as a way to treat patients with cryptococcal meningitis, when in fact, if you read the body of the article, you find it as a good lesson on how not to treat cryptococcal meningitis, as using the protocols in these studies, the failure rates and mortality rates were appalling. Not that it was a bad study, but the take-home message that became popular wisdom was wrong. So what are the methodologies and results of this study? Is it true that 34% of Americans seek care on a yearly basis from an alternative medicine provider, gag, spit, choke? In the first sentence of the abstract, they say, quote, many people use unconventional therapy, unquote. And in the second paragraph of the introduction, they say that the use of Alternative medicine is, quote, widespread, unquote. So it is nice, at least, that they stated up front the bias that they wanted to prove in the study rather than trying to figure out exactly what the use of alternative medicine was. Also in the introduction, they say, quote, here we define unconventional therapies as medical interventions not taught widely in U.S. medical schools or generally available at U.S. hospitals. Examples include acupuncture, chiropractic, and massage therapy, end quote. Now, how did they determine whether or not these are not widely taught at medical schools or available at U.S. hospitals is not said. This is not a good definition of unconventional therapy. Myself, I use the working definition of therapies that have no biologic or physical plausibility and violate all the known laws about how the world works. So what they did is random phone calls, and they found about 2,295 respondents. About 1,539 completed the interview. About 653 people declined to participate, and 103 people began the interview and stopped before completing all questions. Therefore, half of the phone calls they made were not eligible. So one wonders up front if the population that they interviewed is truly representative of the population of a whole. Then they were asked a series of questions about their health and demographics and what use they made of unconventional methods. So let's look at the results. Now I am definitely in the debt of Timothy Gorski who published a great review of this article in the Scientific Review of Alternative Medicine. The rates of medical conditions in his population were much higher than those reported by the CDC at a similar time. 20% of the patients had back problems, whatever that would be, whereas it's estimated by the CDC that 7% of people have back deformities or impairments and 2% of people have disc disease. 16% said they had allergies. The CDC suggests that number may be closer to 10%. 16% said they had arthritis, or should I say arthritis. The CDC suggests that this may be about 12%. 13% said they had headache. This is about 8% by the CDC. The rates of hypertension and heart disease were the same in this group, 11% and 8%, as the CDC data. This would suggest that they were interviewing a population who were either sicker than the average population or were adept at self-diagnosing illnesses they didn't have it makes one wonder if the population interviewed is representative of the United States population as a whole. Now you could quibble that they didn't ask about 
rates of flu and cold in the last year, and they neglected to ask about obesity, despite the fact that the use of a weight loss clinic was one of the, quote, unconventional therapies, unquote. So, at least as judged by the illness rates, was this representative of the population as a whole? I'm uncertain that that's the case. And did they fail to include some important common illnesses? Yeah, but that's okay. Epidemiologic data is hard to gather, and it's what you do with it, the caveats you use, that help determine the usefulness of the data. I'm well aware of how difficult it is to determine incidence and prevalence of diseases and populations based upon telephone surveys. But it does make the data suspect. But now we really get to the meat of the matter. What about the use of alternative medicine or unconventional therapies? They looked at the percent who used these therapies in the last 12 months. Now what led the list where one in four people used an unconventional therapy in the last year were prayer and exercise. Say what? Exercise is unconventional? Holy cannoli. What medical school did he go to? Exercise isn't unconventional. It is one of those myths that doctors neither know about nor suggest exercise to their patients. We do it all the time. The problem is that patients don't like to partake. Exercise may be many things, but unconventional ain't one of them. Conventional therapies they looked at was relaxation techniques, which led the list at 13%, massage at 7%, going to a weight loss clinic, 4%, lifestyle diets, that's every cardiac patient, 4%, and hypnosis and biofeedback at 1% each. None of the above would really be considered alternative or unconventional, and many of them are taught and accepted and used by us narrow-minded physicians. There's also a lack of precision as to what these modalities are that makes the data suspect. When I get a back rub for my wife and my cervical disc disease act up, am I using unconventional therapy? I don't think so. The same is true of other unconventional modalities mentioned. If you're using hypnosis for smoking cessation or you're using it for past life regression, there are a lot of uses of hypnosis, so it's difficult to know. Being a pedant, if you don't have a precise definition of your terms, it is difficult to draw conclusions. Massage, relaxation, and even hypnosis can have a wide range of uses and definitions. Now what about the really crazy modalities? Chiropractic came in number one at 10%, herbs at 3%, homeopathy at 1%, and less than 1% of people used acupuncture. And what constitutes chiropractic is not mentioned in the study. And it's interesting that 30% of people who used chiropractic in the prior year did not see a chiropractor. It doesn't surprise me, as my brother-in-law will occasionally pop his own back, and he calls this using chiropractic. Even more curious, however, was acupuncture, where 9% of people who used acupuncture did not see an acupuncturist in the prior year, suggesting, though not proven, that they were sticking themselves with needles. But these anomalies really make you wonder about the validity of the data set. But did 34% of Americans use alternative medicine in the prior year? No way. This is such a misrepresentation of the data that it makes your teeth hurt. If you exclude exercise and prayer, maybe 10 to 12% tops used alternative medicine. And for those who used modalities completely divorced from reality, Maybe 2% of people use things like homeopathy and acupuncture. 
So it may be that the people who are using 10% of their brain are those who say that 34% of people used alternative medicine in the prior year. There are also many wacky interventions not mentioned that people could or could not use. There was 1% of people in this study who used other alternative medicines not asked about. And this would include the really stupid things like iridology, urine drinking, bee pollen, light therapy, and the many other alternative therapies that are occasionally touted as beneficial, but of course aren't. So the data and the results suggest that 34% of Americans partake of alternative medicine in a year is BS and at most very suspect. And so if the data that suggests that one in three Americans use alternative medicine is suspect, so are the conclusions. Do more people go to quacks than primary care? Who knows, but I bet not. Their definition of an alternative provider is so broad that it's difficult to know where to draw the line. And the same would be said about the extrapolations on money spent on alternative medicine. The conclusions drawn from bad data are probably bad conclusions. So what happened after this study was published? A couple of interesting things happened in the next decade. The first is Senator Harkin, a believer in the health benefits of bee pollen, got funding for the Office of Alternative Medicine. The NIH is now involved, so it must be safe, effective, and rational. Not. Happened after this article, though unrelated to this article, was the supplement industry became unregulated. And as a result, huge amounts of advertising were used for the promulgation of alternative herbal and homeopathic medications. And we've all seen the advertisements on TV for erectile dysfunction and weight loss that we've had to suffer through for these alternative therapies. I mention this in the context of the next article, which Dr. Eisenberg published in JAMA, that used the same flawed ideas of unconventional medicine to show an increased use in what he now called alternative rather than unconventional medicine. Was there really an increase in the use of quackery? Well, let's look at the details of this study. In this study, they paid the questionnaires, and 31% of patients had to be offered $50 to take the interview after initially saying no. So besides this difference in acquisition of patients, the same methodology was used, so the same flaws. And the results of this study are interesting. The use of chiropractic and acupuncture was the same. There was no increase in people partaking of these forms of quackery. There was still a significant number of people who were practicing on themselves, i.e. people receiving acupuncture without seeing an acupuncturist. Relaxation therapy went up just a little bit, from 13 to 16%. But most of the increases in alternative medicine use were in the heavily advertised supplement and herbal preparations. The use of herbals increased 380%, and there was almost similarly large increases in the uses of folk remedies, megavitamins, and homeopathy. Now, I would wonder, can people take both megavitamins and homeopathy at the same time? Can you believe both modalities at the same time? Probably. So did the use of alternative medicine go from 34% to 46%? Not really. What went up was supplement use. 
You could be, say, oh, I don't know, a teacher and advertise the benefit of your herbal cold remedy and sell millions and millions without having to prove that they were truly effective. But I think this study showed that there are more lies, damn lies, and statistics being used to prop up the use of garbage than is true. The big increase was not in the big quackery that would concern you, but in those modalities that were heavily advertised due to the dysregulation of the herbal and supplement industry. I think this JAMA article demonstrates the power of advertising and the gullibility of some people for quackery when advertising is allowed to flourish unrestrained and unsupported by data. The sad thing about these articles is that it gives validity to quackery that wasn't there before. If the New England Journal and JAMA says that one-third of Americans are doing this stuff, if JAMA says that usage is increasing, there must be something to it. And there has been a growth in the area of quackery, fueled in part by this flawed article in the out-of-control and unregulated supplement industry. But these are probably topics for a future podcast. So is alternative medicine as popular as they say? Probably not. Not that popularity is a justification for policies and behaviors in human culture, and no one outside of Sudan would suggest it as a practice today. The madness and popular delusions of the crowd are usually not a reliable indicator of an appropriate thing to do. And I say this like the elitist intellectual snob that I am. So in summary, anyone who says that somewhere between a third and a half of Americans are using alternative medicine either has only read the abstract of these articles or is willfully misrepresenting the facts to deceive you to justify their quackery and to get your money. The end. That brings us to the end of another quackcast, an occasional review and rant on alternative medicine, brought to you as a side project of Pusswear.com, where you will find the Persiflagers podcast, the bi-weekly review of infectious diseases, where you can even get free type 1 CME, copyright 2006 by the Creative Commons. References are on the show notes and can be linked from quackcast.com, and old podcasts are archived there as well. There's also, as I mentioned above, a new blog where I review recent articles on alternative medicine. Send your hate mail and spam and questions to knowitall at quackcast.com. I may answer them in a future podcast. Feedback would be of great interest, both positive and negative. I wouldn't mind being accused of being a tool of the medical industrial complex if you see fit. So far, I found one review of my podcast who've given me one star out of five, but I have no idea why. The music is by my son when he was 12, improvising in the guitar. And if you will excuse me, I now need to go and regress into a past life. Hopefully, a past life where I don't have these damn allergies. 